Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know that certain, with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and minds this morning. Please be seated. Let's have a word of prayer that God might deliver his message today. God, we thank you that you give us the blessing to come here and worship and to study at your scriptures that you gave through the prophets, carried along by the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that we will faithfully study this and come away more like Christ as a result of what is read and taught today. May your name be praised forever. Amen. All right, it's been a couple of months since we've been in the book of Daniel. I'll be the first to admit, we are blessed with four men who have a desire to, to preach and come before you, and yet that can mean we're in some different books. We're getting the whole counsel of God. Um, but practically, I understand that uh, it's been a little while, so I want to make sure we cover some of the structure of Daniel and make sure we're feeling comfortable with what we've hit thus far. It's going to be pretty important as we continue to go, but in particular, in today's message, we're going to see a transition in language that is rather critical uh, to not just this message, but to the entire book of Daniel. 
So when we consider the structure, we'll re- if you remember, we have two parts of Daniel. We have parts one, which is one, Daniel 1 through 7. We have a Hebrew prologue to an Aramaic book, or part one. So that Hebrew prologue is Daniel 1, 1 through Daniel 2, 4. And so you'll see it here when it says, and they said in Aramaic, that is the transition. That is the end of the prologue and the transition into that dialogue. In Aramaic is the beginning of our um, of the meat of the first part of Daniel. And then in Daniel 2, also with chapter 7, so starting in chapter 7, going through the end of Daniel in chapter 12, we have an Aramaic uh, prologue in chapter 7 with a Hebrew um, meat and substance of the rest of that um, part 2 of Daniel. So what you might have noticed in there is that there's an overlap. Chapter 7 is both part of part one, but it is also the prologue for part two. And if you've heard the term chiasm, uh, that's what's going on here. And it's a kind of a unique one. It's what we will call an interlocking chiasm. So uh, chiasm, for those who don't know, is a repeated structure or a pattern where you typically think of almost like an ABA, where that, that repeating structure is trying to point and highlight your focus to the center of that chiasm. And that's what we have in Daniel with our two parts. Because there is this uh, part one and part two, but the overlap is seven, uh, which this language is, is all the more critical, it is highlighting chapter seven as the main point of the book of Daniel. That's what we're working towards, is, the point, is chapter seven. And we're going to get a glimpse into chapter seven today. We're going to see a main theme. Uh, we're introduced into a main theme that will carry through all of Daniel, but ultimately uh, prepare us for our study of chapter 7. But today, we get the benefit of finishing the prologue and getting our first language transition into this uh, uh, substance of of Daniel uh, part 1. Additionally, in the book of Daniel, we've talked about how the main theme of Daniel is that Christ is the ultimate authority. It is his sovereignty over kings, rulers, nations, peoples. It's over everything. We've looked at things like the use of the word Adonai instead of Yahweh, which highlights the, the, um, the authority of God, not just the, uh, or so Yahweh has a more broad concept to it, but using Adonai specifically speaks to sovereignty of God and the kingship of God. We've looked at even language, how in the beginning it says God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God gave Judah. Nebuchadnezzar isn't so mighty that he took it for himself. And so we've seen this language, we've seen this talk track, this subversive nature of Daniel, where he is speaking truth, despite speaking about the uh, success of Nebuchadnezzar. And we see this sovereignty theme continue throughout. And we're going to see it, um, or get introduced to its peak form today. So the last thing I'll say before we get into today's pericope, today's uh, portion of scripture, is that... This is not an Aesop's fable. This is not an Aesop's fable. This isn't just a, a good moral story we throw into a veggie tale and we show our children and we're like, yeah, good moral story. That's not what this is about. There is deep, meaningful theology. So deep that I intended to cover 16 verses and I got to verse 11 in my outline and I thought, uh-uh, I can't get to 16. And then you start working and writing out and st- finishing the study We're going to make it to verse 4. We're going to make it to verse 4. There's too much theology in what 
I think so easily in our Bible study and reading can be seen as just a good old story. And that's not what it is. There is a good story. There is a moral, but there is theology. So we're going to look at the theology. We're going to look deeply into this because um, although we won't get to complete the scene of this dream of Nebuchadnezzar or even actually have what I'll call the good guys or Christians or any Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah in the scene here, we're just going to talk about sorcerers and Nebuchadnezzar. And yet we will see Christ in this. Um, But this, this will set the stage of the main thread. The way I picture it is this main thread that goes all the way throughout the tapestry of Daniel on which everything else is getting raveled around. All the context is filled. Okay, so that is a lot of uh, buildup to get into Daniel chapter 2. Look with me at verse 1 where we read, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that prevents him from sleeping. And if we were to translate it like really woodenly from Hebrew, it would say he dreamt dreams. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt dreams. And this specific language speaks not to that he's having this dream over and over and over. It is actually in reference to, it is likely a long dream in deep detail. Very deep detail, very long dream. We see this same um, phrasing and syntax used about Ezekiel and his visions, that he dreamt dreams, but it's this specific, long, detailed dream from God, this vision. And so this dream, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has is so troubling and terrifying, he can't even sleep after it. He ends up having to uh, call in his advisors to try to assuage his fears, to calm him down. And when we look at who this group of, of characters are, who these royal advisors, his council are, we got a cast of characters. I mean, a serious cast of characters. If you look at the four things there, uh, I know we're in the Halloween month. Uh, this, is, this is some spooky stuff, right? This is truly spooky stuff. The men who Nebuchadnezzar wants to advise him. We see the use of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans in verse 2. So uh, magicians are perhaps what we're most familiar with in, um, in this church specifically. We've actually had the same use of the word magicians and the same ethnic people that are magicians taught to us, taught about by our brother Nick. So magicians in Nebuchadnezzar's courts are likely Egyptians. They're likely the Egyptian magicians. Um, and if you remember how we, we started off kind of our, our setup and our introduction into Daniel, we started with the Battle of Carchemish. We had this battle that after the good King Josiah had died and been killed um, by Egypt, and Egypt took vassal authority over the vassal of Judah, then we have Nebuchadnezzar and we have Babylon win the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, taking over the authority and the ownership of Judah from Egypt. So at this point, Uh, Then it's at that point that um, Nebuchadnezzar takes the four young men, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, along with other young men of Judah, to be taken into the Chaldeans' training and to progress. Well, likely he would be doing the same with the Egyptians. And we even see in archaeology, actually we see evidence and writings of accounting and tabulation of slaves and servants, and there are Egyptians serving in the royal court of the king. So it makes sense that it's there. But Even further, um, we see 
we see that these magicians, uh, this language for the magicians, is actually shown in scripture to be the same people. Um, so I'm going to turn to Genesis 41.8. And in Genesis 41.8, you'll see how um, scripture itself refers to magicians and the um, Egyptian magicians, which are known for their dark arts. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. The magicians of Egypt are building up a, a track record of not being able to interpret dreams all that well. But it continues in Exodus. Uh, I'm going to pull from Exodus 7, but we see multiple times throughout the plagues and throughout Moses' interaction with Pharaoh, we see the magicians called upon because they are specifically known for effectiveness in their dark arts. Exodus 7, 21 through 22 says, And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So the magicians aren't just, don't think of illusionist party trick, you know, you have them at your kid's birthday party. These are people who are actually using demonic power to try to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream here. And if we quickly look at the other three uh, groups here, we have our enchanters. So enchanters are soothsayers. They use incantations. So think about chanting as a group, singing, trying to summon spiritual power to be able to, um, in this case, interpret a dream, or, but to have power that is beyond them and knowledge beyond them. They use it chanting and singing. And then we have sorcerers. So these are cultists who are summoned spirits and gain act to try to gain access to the spiritual realm, to gain knowledge and power that should not belong to them. And they're in a similar category, or we often see them lumped in together in scripture with necromancers and with mediums. So the one that I know comes to my mind is in 1 Samuel 28, King, uh, Saul, King Saul tries to summon or ends up summoning um, Saul, or excuse me, Samuel, and talking to Samuel and uses a medium. Okay, it's in this, that same realm. So we see there is, a, there is power behind these dark arts. There is definitely a power. And we've definitely heard of, of these powers and the, the devil behind the serpent with Pharaoh. But these same um, different practitioners of evil also have some sense of power at some level at various points, but are inept at interpreting the king's dream. Lastly, we have the Chaldeans. And we've had the Chaldeans referenced actually already in the book of Daniel a couple of times. We're going to hear them referenced a lot. And Chaldeans are referenced in two ways. The first of which is an ethnic group. There is a group in which um, history and, and um, uh, archaeology, we see that we're Chaldeans. There is a group of people and tribe in a region in Babylon owned that are called the Chaldeans. But beyond the ethnic group, there's also a school, an academy. It is the collegiate system of Babylon are these Chaldeans. And what we end up seeing is these Chaldeans are actually the ones um, who are training Hananiah, um, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. When we are told in Daniel chapter 1 that they were to be trained for three years by the Chaldeans. So these are the academics. And the academics approach in this particular passage, so not yet referring to the ethnic 
group, the Chaldeans, we'll see that at times, but this academic approach, they try to take the scientific method to dreams. They're, they're actually known for keeping logs of dreams and trying to create an algorithm or try to create a predictive and interpretive model for understanding the meaning of dreams. So we have all four of these groups of people, but more specifically than how they conduct evil, more important to that is the fact that they're listed out, all four of them, rather than just saying he, he summoned his advisors and counselors or Chaldeans. We're gonna see in a moment how he uses Chaldeans to refer to the whole lot of them. But instead, he lists them all out. And it highlights for us the significance of the terror that Nebuchadnezzar is feeling. Nebuchadnezzar is feeling dread. He cannot sleep from this dream. And so he brings all of the wisdom, earthly wisdom, that the most powerful man in the ancient Near East can muster, and they're sitting in front of him. And Nebuchadnezzar puts them to the test and wants to have his, his fears assuaged. What we know... Um, what we know additionally, aside from what's going on in this scene, is that all of these things that these four groups are doing is expressly forbidden by God. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, and we will see that these specific acts that are called out by the nations, other nations that Israel's, Israel will go into and dispossess, are expressly forbidden. In Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Okay, we got a cast of characters sitting here in front of Nebuchadnezzar. We've made it pretty quickly through a couple of verses here, and we're going to move quickly through verse 3 and spend the rest of our time in verse 4. But we see this, this cast, this lot, um, attempts now um, to, to um, address the dream of the king. In verse 3, King Nebuchadnezzar says, and the, or it says, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So he prompts, he's addressed them, he's prompted this group to respond and do they respond? The Chaldeans are the ones who do the responding. And as I mentioned before, in this case, the Chaldeans is being used now as like a moniker, as a name to reference the whole lot of these, uh, these dark, dark dudes, these people using wicked, wicked practices that are forbidden by God. And so these Chaldeans, this group, responds, and it officially ends our Hebrew. It officially ends our Hebrew in this part one. Why would mid-verse, now the verses themselves that are put in are not a part of the original written scripture, but still, why would mid-sentence we switch language? Why? Well, it's very intentional. Let's look at what happens at the switch of language. Let's look what's said. 
In Daniel, uh, four, in Daniel 2, verse 4, it says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, last word of Hebrew, then in Aramaic it says, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. O king, live forever are the first words in Aramaic from this group. This title, this phrase on its surface is very commonplace. We're going to see it actually, I think, four or five times in the book of Daniel, this phrase. It is the moder- our modern day equivalent would be your majesty. It's, it's a way to address a king. In fact, Daniel himself uses this phrase, this Aramaic phrase in Aramaic, O king, live forever. In Daniel 6, 21, it says, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. So this, this phrase is used. But why is Daniel including that? Why not just get into it? And why is that where the transition happens? I will tell you it is to be clearly subversive and is to highlight God and his glory and Christ and his glory, not the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. It is to show that Nebuchadnezzar is not a king who will live forever or whose kingdom is forever. So, In this, let's look at first what is actually being said and see some of the foolishness of saying such a thing or or what is being communicated in these words to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we'll look into the language and, and what's going on as well. So the king, O king, live forever. King will not live forever. This is this is pretty basic stuff. But who is in control of the king's life? So when they're talking to the king and trying to show reverence, Who's the one who determines who lives forever? In Job 14, 1 through 5, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one, since his days are determined and the numbers of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. By saying, O king, live forever, the immediate thought by us who know better, and they who should know better, is that him living forever is not an option, and who the controller of life is God. So even in a magisterial um, address to a king, God should be our thought. Additionally, Acts 17, 24 through 26 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every emanation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Those of us with the whole of scripture that we are blessed with, this is what we should be thinking. We should be hearing the irony in saying to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. It's God who determines the length of a man's life. But more important than the word live here is the duration. It's the word forever. This officially is the main thread, the main theme that you will see through the rest of Daniel. It's the first use of the word forever. And my hope is if we're successful in our study today of Daniel 2, all the way through verse 4, that we will not think of the word forever the same. That regardless of where it's used or by by whom it is said, 
the word forever should make us think of Christ and his eternal kingdom. That should be the immediate evocation, the immediate response. Daniel uses the word forever 13 times in this book, and we're going to be flipping through our Bible a lot to look at a bunch of those. But Daniel uses the word 13 times. There is a very intentional use of the word forever, and that is the theme. That is the key point. In the chapter 7 of Daniel, in that interlocking chiasm at the center, we're going to see forever referenced over and over. So in, in, in this dream, we're going to take a sneak peek. We're going to look ahead and look at some spoilers. Let's go to Daniel 2.44. Please look with me. These next several passages, I, if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn with me and just get this feeling that I have when I go through my Bible of over and over and over. We're getting hit with these same themes from Daniel. And it should be building and building and building. And you should see it screaming out to you that it is Christ here in the forever. Daniel 2, 44 is where we're looking now. So now we're into the interpretation of the dream and Daniel's interpreting. Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now turn with me another page or two over to Daniel 4. These wise men, these counselors, approach King Nebuchadnezzar, saying, O king, live forever. Well, what does Nebuchadnezzar have to say about um, the eternity of his kingdom and the eternity of his own life after having witnessed the fiery furnace? Daniel, or excuse me, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace, along with the angelic being. What does Nebuchadnezzar himself say in Daniel 4, 1 through 3? King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is the king who has just been told to live forever. And yet here he will confess that it is God's kingdom that will be eternal. Well, it doesn't stop here. Let's keep going. Further, um, further down in verse 34 of Daniel 4. So Nebuchadnezzar, despite having confessed this, um, is prideful and arrogant and God humiliates him. Uh, very famous story. You'll know, be very familiar with it, and I look forward to preaching through it. But it's what happens when Nebuchadnezzar is revealed or is, um, excuse me, is brought back um, to his sanity. It is the humiliation has completed that segment. And what is Nebuchadnezzar's response yet again in 434? At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. We're still not done. Let's turn to Daniel 6, 25 through 26. These are the words of King Darius. Okay, um, We've just had Daniel in the lion's den, the scene of Daniel in the lion's den. And then we have King Darius in verses 25 through 26 of Daniel 6. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, 
people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Now, who is ruling this forever kingdom? I hope we all know it. Who's ruling the forever kingdom? Let's look at 2 Peter, or I'll read for us 2 Peter 1.11. Stay in Daniel. We're going to be coming back some more. 2 Peter 1.11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is Christ's eternal kingdom. Revelation 11.15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen? It is Christ's eternal kingdom. O king, live forever. This is the address they give. I am telling you, it is not just a basic introduction. Daniel is being very intentional. God is being intentional with his Holy Spirit through Daniel to have this be the first words of Aramaic, the very first words. There's a, a, there's a hyperlink, there's attention being drawn to the first use of the word forever. It is going to be ongoing, speaking to the sovereignty, but the sovereignty of an eternal forever kingdom. Those who are practicing wicked, demonic, evil things that are condemned by God are speaking of the Christ as carried along by the Holy Spirit through Daniel. And if you still think, okay, I I get that. That is a theme. I see this. It's throughout Daniel. But this specific reference here at the beginning in Aramaic, like you're you're making too big of a deal of it. Daniel does this later too. It's just just an address. You're wrong. I'm telling you now, you're wrong. Let's look. Let's look at... um, how and why God would have Daniel switch languages mid-sentence. So going back to Daniel 2, verse 4, let's look for a second. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, transit, now we have our transition to Aramaic, O king, live forever. So up to this point, we've had a Hebrew prologue that overviews a capture of Jerusalem all the way to Daniel's royal, the end of Daniel's royal service. We got this like synopsis. Then in chapter 2, we continue in Hebrew, setting the stage of Nebuchadnezzar's terror. So the end of Hebrew is Nebuchadnezzar terrified by a vision. Then the very first words are used to speak of of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom living forever. Now we're going to turn back again to Daniel 7. All right, this is our, you hear Daniel 7, think interlocking chiasm. This is the the buildup. This is what we're going to come to. This is what we're building towards in Daniel. Daniel 7, we're going to start with verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." We have our forever theme in this Daniel chapter 7. Now, this is the vision Daniel's having. So Daniel's having this vision. So first we had Nebuchadnezzar earlier with the vision ending Hebrew. Here in this last chapter of Aramaic, we have Daniel um, having this vision. And how does he respond? In verses 15 and 16, we see Daniel's response. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Daniel is terrified of a vision he's just been given. Here in the last portion of Aramaic, and we're, it gets even closer. It toes right up to the line. What is the interpretation of this dream? Let's look a little further down at Daniel 7, 23 through 27. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the interpretation of Daniel's dream of which he is terrified. And we have one verse left in Aramaic to end our Aramaic Uh, part one, and also ending our Aramaic introduction to a Hebrew part two of Daniel. In verse 28, how does Daniel respond? Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Look at the pattern going on here. This, This is the end of Aramaic. First, we have Daniel Ending Hebrew, setting the stage with Nebuchadnezzar terrified of a vision. The very first words of Aramaic are about the eternity of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The final words of Aramaic are about the destruction of the earthly and spiritual kingdoms, and they are to be ruled by Christ eternally. And then the last thing, the last part there, is followed by Daniel being terrified of the vision. This this pattern, it's clear. The beauty of of the writing of scripture is that it is using not just words, but patterns and these cyclical patterns to draw attention to what matters most. The words, O King Live Forever, being recorded and being the first words in Aramaic are absolutely intentional. It is not an unintentional change. O King Live Forever, through the mouths of those who would use demons for power, and yet we are given the greatest hyperlink to the glorious kingdom that will be ruled forever by the Christ. Brothers and sisters, the word forever should never be the same. When you hear forever, it doesn't need to be said in front of a king. If you hear the word forever, think his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And who is it ruling that kingdom? It is Christ. The word forever should be an encouraging word to us as Christians. There is one eternal kingdom. There is one forever, and there is one ruling it. Let's look now at Daniel 5. Turn back. Uh, if you're in Daniel 7, turn with me back to Daniel 5, through 23. Daniel's now interpreting the handwriting on the wall. Yet another one of these that might be seen as this Aesop's fable, this cute story. What is actually going on here in this forever kingdom? Again, keep your ears attuned to the words eternal, everlasting, forever. 
you should see that he is building on this thread that is going through this cord, going through the tapestry of Daniel. Daniel 5, 22 through 23. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. Remember, I'll pause here. These are the vessels that were stolen and plundered from the temple in Judah in verse one and two and three of Daniel one that is being referenced here. We'll look deeper at it, but it is a direct affront to God. Continue on in verse 23. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and who, whose are all your ways you have not honored. That theme of life, who is the controller of life, should be coming back to us. O king, live the live part of this live forever. And we're going to see these pieces come together again here by actually going back to a passage we read earlier. Turn your Bibles to Acts 17. I would love for you all to look with me there. We're going to read a little bit longer passage here, 10 verses. We're going to read from the words of Luke about what the apostle Paul said. Acts 17. We read a portion of this earlier, talking about the duration of life. So we're connecting this Daniel 5 portion we just read about reading, worshiping these different Um, the gods of these different man-made, handmade objects. Acts 17, 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance of God, ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Far too often, we believe that we will live forever. It's the way we act. The way we are acting, the sin we are committing We think we control our kingdom. It is our kingdom and it's an eternal kingdom. There is no judgment at the end of this. Because if you truly believed and had faith in God in that moment, that there is judgment for what you're about to do, you would not do it. Instead, you think you are king of your own kingdom. We worship gods made with human hands. When we conduct our sin, we are worshiping something else in the moment 
and that thing is made with human hands. We worship sports, our family image, pornography. We worship our children. We worship lost loved ones. We worship money. We worship entertainment. Whatever the thing is that you're sitting there thinking, please don't say that thing that describes me exactly, think of it. You worship it. When we sin, we worship it, and we are worshiping a thing made by human hands. And what, did it, what were we told by Paul in Acts? Repent. Stop worshiping a God of silver and stone. Those here today who have not repented of their sin and have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, who is risen and who will rule the eternal kingdom, there is a day fixed in which he will return and conduct judgment on the world. He will judge the world in righteousness. None of us are righteous. We cannot stand up to that judgment. Only Christ himself could stand up to the judgment that he could bring. Give up the short-term pleasures of the world and enjoy the forever kingdom with Christ the forever kingdom with the saints who will be given this kingdom. And then brothers and sisters in Christ, the things of this world are temporary and fleeting. Do not get distracted by things made with human hands. Live in Jesus, whom we have life and breath and our move and our being. We said it over and over today, his steadfast love endures forever. What is that forever? What is that forever? It is together we get to say, O king, rule forever, but to Jesus Christ, who is truly intended in the scriptures. Let's pray. God, we confess. We come to you knowing we have made this world our kingdom. We have believed that it is ours to rule. Adam believed that he could rule this kingdom that you gave for him to have dominion over in the short term, Lord, but he believed he could rule it as God and take authority to make decisions of what is right and wrong upon himself. And Lord, we affirm, we reaffirm that decision and sin and arrogance every day. We worship the things made by human hands. We worship the pleasure and leisure of the world, the things that the world tells us we should worship, and we go along with it. And yet, Lord, you are blessing us every day by giving us scriptures which call us to repent, that say, leave that world and fix your eyes on the eternal kingdom. Lord, we thank you for that eternal kingdom. You have, you have begun the process of bringing out the eternal kingdom, Lord, and we pray that the Christ will return quickly and swiftly to judge with righteousness, Lord, and to judge us with the righteousness of Christ and not our own actions. For that, we thank you. May you be ascribed all eternal power and glory, and may we rejoice together looking forward to that day when we will worship eternally. In your son's name, the bringer of judgment, the giver of righteousness, the defender of our faith, the protector of our eternal souls, we pray. Amen.